Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for your word which endures forever and for your truth which abides and upholds us as your people, unites us in the one communion of saints. Send your spirit to be with us now, O God, so that our reading of the scripture would be profitable. Build us up to live as your priest in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. All right. I want to start with the, uh, another clip from uh, my, one of my favorite websites, the Babylon Bee, the parody <laughs> Christian uh, website. Which says, the headline website. reads, Revival Postponed Due to Scheduling Conflict. <laughs> says, a carefully planned, spontaneous outbreak of God's spirit onto his people, originally slated for this Friday, has been postponed, as church leaders at a local Assemblies of God congregation discovered a conflict with a previously arranged night of healing to take place at the same location. We apologize for the mix-up on when the Holy Spirit was scheduled to move powerfully among us, church leaders wrote. We'd forgotten that we had already arranged for a night of healing to take place in the fellowship hall, so we had to cancel this spirit-led time of incredible revival. Pending a scheduling issue with an instructional class on speaking in tongues, the church will reportedly be tentatively rescheduling the powerful time of unbelievable, unplanned spiritual revival for the middle of November. <laughs> the joke there, if you're not like super familiar with like, charismatic kind of theology, is you know there's always this emphasis on just the spontaneous outpouring of the Spirit. It's not, it's not a rote thing. It's not a planned thing. It just pours forth. And they're kind of poking fun at that and saying, uh, yeah, but even the spontaneous planned outpouring of the Spirit has to be put on the calendar at some point. Uh, but my question, and I think it's one that as Lutherans we have to reckon with, is must order and structure be at odds with the working of God's Spirit? In other words, does having a plan, having a schedule, having a, an order and a pattern, structured way of doing things, does that have to be at odds with the working of God's spirit? Does God's spirit only work through the spontaneous and the unstructured, the free-flowing kind of thing? Okay. I feel like you're leading us towards an answer. I know, I know, I know. That's, I'm not a good lawyer, right? He likes, he likes structure and order. Okay, he likes structure and order. Pick up your socks and make your bed. Pick up your socks and make your bed. Is that in the Bible? It's definitely from my mom, which is the next closest thing to the Bible, but yeah, exactly. But Okay, good. He's a both-and kind of guy. Ah, that's a good, good Lutheran answer, right? He's a both-and kind of guy. So it's uh, talking about the Lord, right? He, and so it's not just uh, you know, the spontaneity and the free-flowing gifts of the Spirit, which that's a, a fundamental aspect of our faith, but also the structure and the order. Certainly Leviticus pushes us more in that direction, right? But it's not either or, uh, both-and. Good. Yeah, Court. Uh, when, when I started going to church, I... The last week started going, me going to the Lutheran church. Yeah. And so I went in. And uh, my sister-in-law come up to us and said, Oh, the pastor is starting, uh, started the, the new members uh -huh. class already. But I went and asked him if you could start. Uh -huh. Well, I'm not one for pushing. So I was, you know. <laughs> So that's sort of the spontaneous along with Okay, good. So for in, in your example, in your experience, that was a, a spontaneous time. Sure. But, but it was a scheduled class. But it was a scheduled class, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Carla. Well, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, it says everything should be done in an orderly mm. and fitting way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what what's the next phrase of that after that? It says something like, for God is, is 
Oh, okay. But yeah, that's right, Bob. It's for God is not a God of, of chaos, but of, of orderliness, of peaceableness, of shalom, right? Um, so, no, like Chip said, yeah, I'm leading you down a particular direction, which, you know, you're here, I think you're probably sympathetic to this, but I, I think it is important to recognize uh, order, structure, those are not at odds with faithfulness and living by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit works, and I use a Lutheran phrase, in with and under those structures and um, orders and patterns and so forth. Um, and I, th I think that we especially see that in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, go ahead. I had a niece one time who is not Lutheran, comes out of the Nazarene tradition. Uh -huh. says, what I don't like about you Lutherans is right. you have all these prayers written down. Yes, we should right. be praying spontaneously. Unless it's a prayer from the heart, it's not a real prayer. Right. And I says, have you ever tried this prayer, Our Father who art in heaven? She says, Uncle Bob, that's not fair. You're <laughs> <laughs> not, not playing fair. I know, but that's, I think that's a, a common thought is that, well, you have to have a, a real prayer only comes from the heart. It's only spontaneous. But uh, as I think any person who comes from kind of a free church background will tell you, even what's a supposedly spontaneous prayer, after a few weeks, people will just naturally fall into almost a liturgical rhythm about it because that's just the kind of creatures that we are. Not a bad thing. All right, so we're going to look uh, briefly again. We got it partway into Leviticus 7 last week. I want to touch on just a couple more things from it. It's mostly just extending what we talked about in chapter 6, but then I really want to get into chapter 8 because um, it turns the corner into the discussion of the institution of the, the priesthood, the ordination of Aaron and his sons, and uh, the description of the, the worship, and then our good friends Nadab and Abihu. And if you don't know who Nadab and Abihu are, you're in for a real treat. That's a, it's a, a great story. So um, Leviticus 7, and uh, we're going to take a look at a, a couple of sections. First of all, verses 11 through 18. Okay, Leviticus 7. Let me read that for us. And this is the law. Remember last week we said it's the Torah, the teaching, not just a commandment, but the teaching of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and leaves of loaves of fine flour well, well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it, he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It's tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Okay, uh, this class of sacrifices might, are described here as thanksgiving sacrifices. And this is a really um, significant distinction and understanding of uh, the way that sacrifices work especially as we look at things through a New Testament lens. But broadly speaking, within the, the, the scriptures, including the Old Testament, we can kind of have two classes of sacrifices. I mean, there's a whole bunch of uh, sub-sacrifices that we could put under these two, uh, two classes, but you've got a, a table on your um, handout. 
you want to fill this in. The two big classes are what you would call atoning sacrifices and thanksgiving sacrifices. Okay? Atoning sacrifices and thanksgiving sacrifices. So let's just go through these kind of briefly. Atoning sacrifice, these are God's gift received in faith for the forgiveness of sins from heaven to earth. Okay? Oh, is somebody speaking in tongues right now? I sense a book of the Spirit. Very good. Um, so the uh, atoning sacrifices, and we, we've seen these throughout Leviticus, is how God is reconciling his people to himself, bringing, them, bringing us back together with him. When it comes to the atoning sacrifice, the movement is from heaven to earth. It's God's gift given to us. Now you say, well, wait a second, but they're doing a whole lot. They've got to slaughter the animal. They've got to throw the blood. It looks like it's, it's their work doing that. But understand, all of that would not avail were it not for the fact that God instituted it as his gift in a sacramental sort of way, if I can use that word. That if this sacrifice is received in faith, it is his gift to make us forgiven, holy, and whole. Okay? So that's the atoning sacrifice. Now, when we look at things from a New Testament perspective, how many atoning sacrifices are there? What's that? One. One. Exactly right. And that is? Jesus. Okay. Yep. From, from heaven to earth, Christ Jesus coming down for us, him laying down his life and taking it up again, his death and resurrection, is the once for all atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices, see, is what he has done for us. <clears throat> but there's this other class of thanksgiving sacrifices, which are not for atonement, but rather are our response <laughs> to God's gift. It's not received in faith so much as it is prompted by faith. It's gratitude for forgiveness, and the movement then is from earth to heaven. So there is this, this corresponding movement, this rhythm, which is embodied in our worship of receiving from God and then responding to him. Receiving his word, receiving his blessing, receiving his forgiveness, and then responding to him with Thanks and praise and lives of faithful obedience. We do that not in order to merit or to atone for ourselves, but because we're already merited for and atoned for and reconciled to the Father. Does that make sense? Nod your head, you're kind of tracking with me. Okay. So uh, when it comes to these Thanksgiving sacrifices, or they're sometimes called Eucharistic sacrifices, from the Greek word that means Thanksgiving, Eucharist, um, there's a whole uh, slew of Thanksgiving sacrifices that we could mention. So what are some Thanksgiving sacrifices that we as Christians offer to the Lord? Singing praise. Singing praise, yeah. So it's uh, our, when we sing, it's the, the fruit of lips, the scripture says, as we, we praise the Lord. Good. A lot of the others, though, are hard to, are sort of, we do, he does. We do, he does. Uh, okay, so, well, let's talk about that. What are some other ones that, that come to mind? Communion. Okay, so communion, would communion be a thanksgiving sacrifice or an atoning sacrifice? Well, we would say that it's an it's extension, reception of that atoning sacrifice, right? And this was uh, one of the big, uh, maybe the big theological touch point, flashpoint between the Lutherans and the uh, uh, Roman Catholics uh, at the time of the Reformation. So the Roman Catholics viewed it as the we're re-sacrificing Jesus in a sense. They called the sacrifice of the mass. 
And biblically speaking, and this is what, what Luther and others wanted to harp on is, no, in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, we are receiving the fruit of that sacrifice that's been offered once for all. See, it's at that table where God is delivering his gifts, right? Um, but it's, we call it the Eucharist because we do, along with it, offer up sacrifices of, of praise and thanksgiving to him in the course of it, right? Romans 12. Yeah, our lives as living sacrifices. Which are a thanksgiving. Which are a thanksgiving, yeah. Other things you can think of that these Eucharistic or Thanksgiving sacrifices? Yeah, Bill. Maybe I'm off on the wrong track, but uh, time, talent, and treasure. Sure. When we talk about stewardship type stuff, right? Time, talent, treasure. Which, crazy enough, time, talent, treasure, that phrase is not in the Bible. You'd think that it was for as often as you hear preachers mention it. Uh, it's in Second Galatians, actually. Um, that's not a book of the Bible. Okay. Um, but to, to Bill's point, I mean, these things that we typically class as stewardship would very much be Thanksgiving sacrifices, offerings up to the Lord, offering our skills. Um, oh, what's the hymn? Priscilla, what's the hymn I'm thinking of? Uh, take my life. Take my life and let it be. Yeah. Consecrated Lord. <laughs> you can't read my mind? Of course. <laughs> that hymn really captures that, that sense of it. Any, any other thoughts? Just thanks. Same thing, but monetary offering. You're, yep. You're yep, exactly. So the, the, the treasure side of mm -hmm. it, right? The monetary offerings. Those are Thanksgiving sacrifices. And again, this is where um, purgatory and the indulgences that were being purchased at the time of the Reformation, this is why it was so problematic. It was turning what ought to have been a Thanksgiving sacrifice, i.e. making gifts, offering up gifts to the Lord, and turning it into an atoning sacrifice. So that if you buy these indulgences, you can, you know, uh, get time off of your, your purgatory sentence. You can uh, spring somebody uh, from, from purgatory and get them into heaven. Right? So it's reversing that atoning versus thanksgiving sacrifices. All right, I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's a really helpful um, distinction to be able to make and to understand when we think about things like prayer, like um, singing, worship, all these different ways in which we are offering thanksgiving as response to God rather than as ways to um, earn his favor. Right. All right. Um, uh, to give you just one more verse, we've mentioned a couple already. 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice, ex sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Someone talks about spiritual sacrifices there. It's the thanksgiving sacrifice that we're talking about. Interestingly, there, there are oftentimes these sacrifices aren't made to God, they're made to people. Yeah. When the Pharisees and the church leaders said to Jesus, you're eating with the wrong kind of folks, he mm. said, go learn what this means. Mm -hmm. I would have mercy and not sacrifice. Right. So your sacrifices, you think you're doing something toward me. The thing that makes me happy yeah. is when you're loving your neighbor. Yeah, that's right. In my name. Yep, that's right. That's very good. Showing mercy in that horizontal way. Good. All right. I want to press on for one more section from chapter 7, and then we'll get into uh, chapter 8. Just these verses here, 19 through 21. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten, shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast 
or any unclean, detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Okay, strong words. Um, it brings to my mind a phrase, some of you know this one, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah. Also not in the Bible, okay? At least as far as I know. Now, maybe it's in the Proverbs somewhere. but um, No, but cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm not sure the origins of that phrase is a kind of an English proverb. Any, any of you happen to know? But it's certainly reflective of the, the theology of Leviticus, right? Where it's talking not just about, you know, keeping clean, showering regularly, that sort of thing, but that kind of spiritual cleanliness, that, to come before the Lord with pure hands and a clean heart, as it says in, in the psalm, Psalm 24. Come before him with pure hands and a clean heart. Now, when we come for worship, what does that look like? What is that, what, what's something that we do as part of our worship to so that we come before the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. Yeah. So we have the confession and absolution right at the beginning. Exactly. Confession and absolution. Right at the beginning, right? Where now we're able to receive that forgiveness of God, that absolving work that is washing us, and so that we are then especially um, fit to come before him to receive his gifts of, of forgiveness and grace in the Eucharist and otherwise, right? Now, does that mean if somebody you know, comes in late to church and misses the confession of sins, then we cast them out, just like it says. Um, like my family did that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to name names, but Chip May. Um, yeah, no, I was came, there, oh, I you were there. there. Yeah. This came from the Book of Mothers. Yeah, yeah the Book of Mothers. <laughs> yeah, right. But see, mothers are so wise. They are able to intuit what God has given to us in, in the Scriptures. But, uh, you know, this lest you think this is just an Old Testament kind of theme, Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Of course, to hear it put that way, what does that evoke? What gift of God does that call to mind? Baptism, right? That now you have been washed and cleaned and made whole. So when we start in worship by uh, doing the invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it's recalling that we are baptized children of God. That's why I encourage us, make the sign of the cross when you do that. Because you're remembering your baptism. That you have been washed. You are clean. You are made holy and whole. And therefore, you are fit to enter into the, the presence of the Savior. Yeah, Leslie. Was it at this point when he was giving all of these um, laws and stuff for the eating of the flesh and that, did they before that already eat meat? And if so, did it matter what they were eating? It's hmm. a good question. Leslie asked, before all of these laws and regulations were giving, given, were they already eating meat? They ate quail. Yeah, exactly. They ate, they ate quail. I mean, they, you know, they, they had the meat pots in Egypt. They were, they were eating meat. What all they were eating, I can't say for certain what their diet looked like. Probably pretty keto, actually. Um, just kidding. But um, yeah, uh, it, I, the, the, the fullness of uh, the regulations were not given until you get Leviticus. It's a good question, historical question. Good. All right. Well, let's get into Leviticus 8 because uh, Leviticus 8 is now um, turning the corner where we're going to um, get into God's guidelines for the ordination of the priesthood, starting with Aaron, but also with, with Aaron's sons, the consecration. And consecration is just a $5 word that means to make holy, to set apart. 
to consecrate. Okay? This is what we're going to see with Aaron and with his anointing and with his um, being claimed by, by the Lord and ordained, set apart. So uh, we're going to get through, we'll see if we get through this whole chapter, but we'll get started on it at least. <clears throat> Let me uh, read the first, first section of it, first couple of paragraphs. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Take note of that phrase. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, I'll stop there. Things that stand out to you so far that raise questions for you as we, we get into this. They're taking it seriously, right? I mean, this is, this is not just some slapdash kind of effort, but you'd see you've got uh, Moses is there. Moses is the one who's actually doing this right. He's the one who's carrying it out, even though Moses himself was not a priest, which is interesting. Um, but Moses is the one who's given this charge to carry out this ordination, right? But as, as well, you've got the whole congregation, it says in verse 3, assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is a public worship service. This isn't just some private thing, but it's in the context of the whole congregation. And there are a lot of neat um, uh, analogies and similarities here with how we still do ordinations. And Pastor Newton, how many ordinations have you taken part of? Oh, yeah, a lot. Many, many. many. Um, because he is our Moses, who leads, well, not exactly, but, um, but, the, but it's, the church continues to recognize the importance of as we set apart a man for the office of the holy ministry, of that being done in continuity with, with the church's practices and in keeping with the teaching of the scriptures, conferring that authority that comes only from the word of God. That's the only authority that a pastor has. He doesn't have some special fancy powers or something like that, but he is the one who wields the word of God for the sake of his people. Yeah, go ahead. But this, the specifics of the, even the dressing that they had yes. to do. Yeah. They had to do this and that, and they, and they had to do it in a certain order, it looks right. like, you know. Yeah. So everything was so this, 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 and this. Yes, that's right. I mean, the first thing that's mentioned, so take Aaron and his sons and the garments, okay? So four things they had to bring along, the garments, the anointing oil, and then, well, three uh, sacrifices, the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread. The first thing that's mentioned, though, is the garments, it's vestments. Why was that so important? Why was it important for them to, to have this fancy getup? You know, why couldn't Aaron show up in his jeans and t-shirt? Because <laughs> Levi Strauss hadn't been born yet is the answer. That's right. 
Well, it was, um, the symbolism around it was the 12 tribes, for one thing. Right. So you have, uh, this isn't here in, in Leviticus, but in Exodus it talks about how they would have the sash over them and on it was written in Hebrew, uh, holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord. Speaking of the priest as he, he stands there before the Lord to minister before him, but also all of the people of God, holy to the Lord. And this is the job of priests. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but it's the job of the, the royal priesthood, of your pastor, but all of you, to come before the Lord, having on our heart the needs and concerns of your neighbors, as, as well as what you yourself bring before him. And I think it's such a powerful way to envision what prayer is, that it's part of a priestly duty of coming before God and say, God, I, I bear on my heart the, this phrase, that I am holy to the Lord, and your people are holy to you. And so I come before you to, to bring that, to offer that up to you. Well, he had the 12 tribes with every, all the jewels. All the jewels, the right. 12 tribes. Yeah. yeah, the onyx, bedalium, I couldn't name them all. This but. is really fancy, fancy, but you look back at the washing with water through the Red Sea and then the sprinkling of blood. They maybe didn't get new clothes, but all the saints on Sinai were consecrated yeah. to the Lord for the nations. Yes, and this is definitely going to, to come out more and more, um, not only in this chapter of Leviticus, but throughout Leviticus, that um, this consecration certainly does not extend merely to Aaron and his sons. Uh, indeed, uh, the verse, well, go ahead and turn there. It just comes to my mind now you mentioned that. Psalm 133. Um, so it's just a short little, little psalm, the Psalter's doing it. Um, but it, it starts out in a very, um, clear, understandable way, but then it takes kind of a weird turn. But when you look at, at it in context of Leviticus 8, it makes total sense. Um, so Psalm 133, <clears throat> behold, how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell together, dwell in unity, yachtav is the Hebrew. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So what is this talking about? The first verse, that's straightforward. How good and pleasant it is when, when we all get together, right? How nice it is to enjoy that, that fellowship. Oh, blessed communion, fellowship divine, we sang today. But then it goes on to say, it's like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, that's a, an allusion to that rite of ordination, that sanctifying, consecrating work that God did for Aaron and his sons. And now this is saying, when as we gather together as the people of God, it's not just a, hey, isn't this a fun time together? It is a sanctifying, uh, consecrating work that happens when we gather together as fellow believers, that you are being made holy and sent out as priests of the, of the Most High Priest of our Lord Jesus. So we all, I think the lesson here is, we all need great beards so that we can have oil running down. Um, but this, it's, it's going back to that Leviticus 8 and that sense that we are all part of, of God's priesthood there. So, yeah, George. So could Leviticus be called the beginning of the organization of the church? Uh, George's question is, could Leviticus be called the beginning of the organization of the church? And I would say it gets unfolded more, but to really look at that, I would want to go back, well, uh, Luther would go back to creation, say it's, it's right there in, in the garden. But when we're looking at it more formally, 
I think um, what Pastor Newton alluded to a moment ago, I would say to Exodus 19. And they are given this charge at the foot of Mount Sinai that you will be, let's look at it real quick. We're in Bible study after all, right? So uh, Exodus, right before Leviticus there, Exodus chapter 19. So the Ten Commandments is given in chapter 20, okay? This is right before it. Israel is standing there at Mount Sinai. And uh, look at chapter 19, verse 4. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I will um, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here you have kind of the constitution of the, of the Israelites and the, the preamble to this covenant that God's about to give to them in the Ten Commandments. Um, but in a very real sense, I would say this is the beginning of the formation of, of the church. It's the, it's the people of God who are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the covenant all wrapped up. Everything else is small print. The, exactly. This is the covenant all wrapped up. Everything else is, is small print. Be sure to read the footnotes. But uh, yeah, that's right. Good. All right, so... To underscore the point, uh, number three on your handout, we see in those first 13 verses or so, priests require proper preparation. Look at all the ways that they're prepared to serve. They're washed, verse 6. They're clothed, verse 7. They're armored, verse 8. They're crowned, verse 9. They're anointed, verse 12. There is this full panoply of God's power being conferred upon the priests as now they are being sent to serve for the sake of his people. But this is really cool stuff, guys. When you think about this now through a, a New Testament lens, as the royal priesthood, how are these rituals also fulfilled in us? And look at this. I mean, you can map this right on there. So first of all, we're washed. Okay, we talked about this already. You're baptized, that you've received washed, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, verse 5. Our hearts have been cleansed already so that as Aaron and his sons were washed as the, and consecrated as the royal priests, so you are, so to speak, ordained at your baptism. See, very tiny priests, but already ordained and set apart for the sake of, of service in God's kingdom. Secondly, you're clothed right along with that there. When, when we think of the gift of baptism, Galatians 3.27 says that uh, all who have been baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. Uh, the practice in the early church, I think it's very beautiful, and I'm thinking about how we can bring this back. You guys see what you think. When somebody was coming to be baptized, they would come in their birthday suit. <laughs> you would come, but Jake, you say no. Uh, <clears throat> you would come buck naked, okay? Um, you'd be covered with the anointing oil, and you would go into the waters many times. It was, there was a, a baptistry. It was like a little uh, pool that you could go into. And you'd be baptized. And then as you came out, you received your baptismal garment. Show of hands, how many of you, if you were baptized as babies, you've got a little, little baptism dress mm-hmm. you had? Just a couple of you, huh? Um, you know, they would often be real frilly and everything. But I think there's just a beautiful, powerful symbolism to that. 
that you are being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the pure, spotless holiness of your Savior. So, as Aaron and the priests were clothed, so you are clothed as well. Armor, thirdly, uh, we talk about um, the full armor of God, of course, Ephesians chapter 6. And um, when I refer to the, the armoring here, um, in Leviticus, you're, you may be wondering about this. Verse 8, he placed the breast piece on him, and in the breast piece, he put the urim and the thummim. Okay? This is part of that armor that the priest was clothed with. But the um, how do you say it again? The urim and the thummim. You ever wondered about that? Yeah. Kind of comes up every once in a while. Like, what's going on with the urim and the thummim? And we can't say 100%, although I did have a church member a few years ago at my previous parish give me some Urim and Thummim. So, uh, I don't know. But uh, it seems like it was a kind of, of sacred lots, sacred dice, okay? Where on the one it's got the Urim, on the other it's got the Thummim, and it was a way in which um, the priests would help to adjudicate, to make decisions. And the idea, as I understand it, is that, okay, we're going to roll these holy dice, and if they both come up, uh, one of them, I'm not sure which was which, but it would say, they both come up Urim, then it would be a yay. It would be a positive. Go forward with this, make, the, make this decision. If they were both the Thummim, say, the opposite one, then that would be a negative. Okay? Go in the opposite direction. It would be a no. And then if, uh, you had, if they were different, you had one of one and one of the other, then that would be kind of a neutral. It's God saying, wait. Right? I'm not giving you an answer right now. This is what I've read. That's my understanding of how it, it worked. I don't know that we can say for certain, but in any event, this is part of what the, the priest is bearing in his breast piece right there, part of his armor as he comes before the Lord. So gambling is biblical. We can go, we can go down to the casino. And... Sister, I don't, I got all kinds of verses that I can show you about. Oh, boy. I'm not, I'm not going to go down this digression, but... I mean, seriously, with you know, choosing pastors and all the process that we go through, and you see, what do they, what do they do in the Book of Acts? They're casting lots. We yeah. actually, fun as it is, um, in our station in the Philippines, we had at one point ten congregations, but had all these so-called lay leaders. Yeah. So we had to have men consecrated for pastoral ministry. Right. I won't go into all the sure. so-called politics right. of it, but. Um, in three of the churches, you know, we talked about it, we set four or five leaders that had been well instructed before them, but in, in these congregations, they actually cast lots. No you kidding. Know, I was real nervous about it because yeah. how's yeah. this coming down? In every case, they chose exactly the men that I thought were set aside. For there them. you go. It was amazing. Yep. But they said, why not? So, why not? That doesn't mean you should gamble. Doesn't necessarily mean you should Just gamble. Saying. Right. If you're willing to give all your winnings to the poor, then maybe it's not such a touche. There you go. Yeah. That's where the heart is. Yeah, you man. could do it with loaded dice too. <laughs> Thought about it. Corn, let's talk about that. Yeah, man. I do think this is kind of distinct from gambling in the sense that it seems like most of the accounts of it are where the groundwork has kind of been laid, but it just comes down to a decision yeah. that cannot be humanly yes. you know, decided. Right. So it's, it's falling to that lot, yeah. and that is God's yeah. choice. Yeah. God has, has given, he's, he's made provision for this way to make those decisions. Yeah, so I mean, I don't mean to be too flip about it. I don't mm -hmm. think this speaks to gambling. That would be 
there's another conversation that we could have about that. But uh, yeah, you, you see this again and again. It's not as though there isn't preparation um, in the book of Acts when you have, they're trying to decide who's going to take Judas's spot. They still want to have that complete number 12, right? Who's going to fill his office? They don't just say, all right, let's just you know, roll the dice and see whoever it lands on. But they, first, they go through a vetting process. Say, so you had to have been with us from the very beginning, been a witness to the resurrection. Um, and then you know, there's two men that they finally settle on, Matthias or another guy. Uh, who is that? Justice. Justice. Oh, is it Justice? Um, and then, uh, you know, then, but at that point, then, they cast lots and just let, it, let the chip fall where it may. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. Um, so, it's, uh, it's an interesting thought. Okay, but that was, I digress. So, we are armored. We are also crowned, um, as we see with their, the turban in verse 9, as Aaron and his sons received that holy crown, so you are crowned. Psalm 103 speaks of this, crowned with that bountiful blessing of the Lord. And then finally, anointed. You receive that anointing oil. This again has a, a baptismal connection to it, but 2 Corinthians 1 so speaks of how you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. All this to say that, just as, as we've been uh, trying to convey here, that this consecration of Aaron and his sons is true for you too as the priesthood of the baptized, as those who have, have been set apart. So then the question might be raised then, well, so why do we need pastors? Or what's the distinct role of the pastor vis-a-vis, uh, if we're all priests, you know, what's the, what's the pastor's job? And I think the simplest way to think about it is that, the pa- is that pastors are set aside to do publicly what all of God's people are called to do privately. In other words, um, the, the pastor is, is deputized by the Lord in order to stand in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus, as you say in the, the absolution words, right? In the stead and by the command for, so that um, in keeping with God's will that there would be uh, a man carrying on that office that Jesus instituted in his uh, life and ministry um, where you can continue, know you can go to to hear the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins in the gospel. That's the pastor's job. So one of my professors, uh, Joel Bierman, would say the pastor is absolution man. <laughs> That's my job, to speak God's forgiveness to you all. Yeah. We also need a leader because in our sin state, we're going to get off track somewhere. Sure. I mean, you can see it in many other right. uh, religions. Right. So you need somebody that you can go to and say, and they had it even with Moses. Sure, right. You know, where they could go to and say, Right. We're having this problem. Yep. We can't agree on something. You sort this out for us. Right. So. Yeah. No. So, I mean, I think there is just that um, natural need for, for a leader, for somebody to help, you know, captain the ship, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Look at the context of the two, quote, unquote, ordinations. If Sinai was an ordination for one, the context was the world. Sure. He said, the whole world is mine. Yeah. The whole world belongs to me, but I choose you to be my priests, i.e., for, for the nations, all right? Yeah. At the ordination of Aaron, he bears not the world, but he bears Israel on his person. Yeah. So the, it's, it's not that 
A pastor doesn't care for the world either, but his primary responsibility are the saints yes. who belong to his. But the saints' responsibility is the world. Yeah. So they're consecrated for the world. For a the pastor's world. consecrated for his church. For the church, exactly. So do you guys catch that? This is, a, this is a really important point. The way I thought about it is just, you know, a pastor is to the church as the church is to the world, right? So the pastor's first calling is to shepherd the flock of God, to equip the saints, right, for works of service, to build you all up so that then you go out into the world as his saints, as his priesthood, so that you can be priests for the sake of your neighbors, for the sake of the world. And like you said, that doesn't mean that, um, that I don't also have a relationship to the world and to my neighbors and so forth. Of course I do, but that's um, in, in my capacity as a disciple, as a fellow disciple of Jesus. But in my um, formal vocation and calling, it's to be shepherd to this flock. See? And now you all go out then as fellow under-shepherds to the flock of our community, right? Of, of our neighbors and all those who may or may not know Christ. Where that really is bold is when we get to it eventually, the return of a leper to the yes. community. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, but it is really returning to yep. service to my community. Yep, and we'll my see. My wife, my children, my neighbor. Yep, that's right. And we'll, we'll see there's some really um, interesting similarities with uh, the restoration of the leper as well as with the consecration of, of Aaron and his sons here. Um, all right, we've got just a couple more minutes. We're not going to finish the, the chapter today, but let me make uh, one more. I uh, want to go through one more uh, passage here from 14. Let's start with verse 14. Going a little bit further. It says, Then he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bowl and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. All right. 
lot there. <laughs> Bottom line, number four on your handout, priests are perfected in blood. Now they are made whole and holy pure so that they're able to carry out this office of um, bringing the holiness of God to his people. So that the priest himself doesn't just get you know, shocked like we um, saw at the beginning of the study, um, like Uzziah, as he encounters the, the Ark of the Covenant. But I wanted to just uh, key in here on um, this really fascinating thing about the blood on the, the right lobe and on the right thumb and on the right foot. What's going on with that there? So uh, you have here, there was a particular kind of association and symbolism that is embedded in this uh, consecrating rite. So first of all, you have the right side. And all due respect to our lefties here, you guys know biblically the right side is identified as the primary side, right? The more godly side. Um, it's, but it is the primary side. And its symbolism is uprightness, okay? I mean, whether you're talking about the, the sheep and the goats on the right hand on the left, or um, elsewhere in the, the scriptures, you've got, if a guy is left-handed, uh, I've heard that the word sinister is even... Left. What's that? Left is Latin, isn't it? Sinister? Yeah, sinister, is I think, is the, the Latin there. So I don't, my wife is a lefty. I've got at least one son who's a... Actually, it's Lewis. Maybe this is making more sense. No. <laughs> uh, no. Okay, so there's the right side. That's the primary, the symbolism of uprightness. Secondly, the ear. Of course, the association with that is hearing. So the symbolism there is that the priests are hearkening to God's word, okay? On that right lobe, that you are going to hear and receive it. Um, in Deuteronomy, you have the great Shema, which means hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Hearing is fundamental to that life of faith. God is a God of speaking. So the right lobe. Secondly, the thumb. The association, of course, is with touch. And they're going to be handling the holy things of God. And so it's as it were, setting apart their thumbs, their hands, for the manual labor of ministry. Don't think of it that way, but that's what they were to do as the priests of God. And then finally, the big toe. Ah, the captain toe. And its associations with moving. Any of you ever stub your big toe? <laughs> you think, how can something so small have such an impact? But or I love football players will have, they call it turf toe, right? Uh, you just can't, you can't move. You'd think, oh, what's the big deal? But uh, the big toe has that association with moving. And the symbolism there, walking on holy ground. Or we might say, following in the footsteps of your Savior. Uh, by doing this, the, you have what are, are kind of shorthand, the lobe, the thumb, and the big toe, that it's shorthand for the whole body, for his whole life. We've alluded to already Romans 12, that your whole body would be a living sacrifice. And similarly, like when we make the sign of the cross, right? You don't cross head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes, right? It's just like this, but it's a way of uh, acknowledging and setting ourselves apart as those who belong to, to Christ. I love that, that physical, tangible side to it. And that's, I, I would say, evidenced in... Uh, the way that you have that, that anointing. And um, 1 Thessalonians 5, when we think of this wholeness, and the, the whole consecration, the whole claiming of the human person, uh, I've always appreciated this benediction, if you will, in 1 Thess Thessalonians 5, which I'll leave you with today. 
Now may the God of peace himself, the God of shalom, sanctify you completely, wholly. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been claimed and consecrated as whole people to be his holy priests in the world. Next week we'll uh, finish out with uh, Leviticus 8. We'll see some of the other ways that um, there's that application and connection with Aaron and his sons and, and also get into the, the um, institution of, if you will, the divine service. But go out today knowing that you are the holy priests of the Lord. And maybe you can wiggle your big toe and your thumb as you remember who you are in Christ. But God be with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you.